If you've been told to pull up your socks, then make sure it's a pair of TNT socks. The TNT shop is now open at tntradio.live. Matt Arrett and Connecting the Dots on today's News Talk Radio, TNT. All right, we're back with Connecting the Dots. This is our second segment. I'll be your host again, Matt Arrett. And uh, I'm very, very happy to be joined by a friend, a colleague, Gordon McCormick, who is otherwise known in some circles as the ghost of based Patrick Henry. How are you doing, Gordon? I'm great, Matt. Great. Thanks for having me today. Glad to be here. Great. I'm uh, I'm very, very happy that you're here with me. I, I've recently started co-hosting a show on Badlands Media called Breaking History every Wednesday with Gordon, and uh, he really has impressed me as a geopolitical analyst, an American patriot, but somebody who really thinks globally in a healthy way. We're all told by the circles around Klaus Schwab, act local, think global. It, it gets played out, and it's dishonest. However, that doesn't mean we shouldn't think global because the context is everything. Our local situation is being shaped by global and historical forces that a lot of people choose to not put too much time thinking about, but it's everything. And that's why I really appreciate what Gordon brings to the discussion as far as an appreciation for those historic forces, the battles and places that a lot of Americans and Westerners don't think so much about as far as what has shaped the Middle East, what has shaped uh, places like Saudi Arabia. And so, Gordon, I'd really like to... uh, to ask you a few questions today regarding some of your your insights, especially since Saudi Arabia, along with Egypt and the UAE, will be joining with Iran, the uh, BRICS, the growing BRICS plus uh, dynamic uh, in a few weeks, really. I mean, I think this process is going to be brought into play in January of 2024. What can you say about the importance of Saudi Arabia and and these other nations joining? What is the BRICS and and what is Saudi Arabia's role within that process? Well, BRICS to me, it it seems like it's it's a strive towards away from the central banking system, the fiat currency system, and towards something that's more, um, I guess you would say national nationalism, like with nationalism at at its heart, uh, where I'm certainly not an expert on the BRICS subject itself, but as far as Saudi's involvement in it, it seems to me like uh, the new crown prince, Mohammed bin Salman, is very, very uh, um, personally invested in the idea of divesting out of oil um, and creating a new Saudi Arabia. He has a vision. I think it was back in 2015, he announced what he called the Vision 2030. This was kind of the antithesis to the Great Reset Agenda 2030, um, where it seems like the like the Klaus Schwab types, the Brzezinski types had nefarious plans for Saudi Arabia. Um, when MBS came to power, he actually, it, from what I've read, he determined that uh, their PIF, their public investment fund, was set to actually go insolvent by 2017. Uh, and he scrambled to make moves to reverse that, um, which I think now is uh, certainly paying dividends. Uh, we've seen them acquire uh, the, the Live Golf um, uh, fr- uh, franchise they've started, um, has now basically acquired the PGA. Uh, they've gone out and purchased uh, properties in the like electronic gaming, like, like e-game, like online gaming space, um, um, MMA, combat sports. They've hosted a lot of major events there. They've started a soccer league. Cristiano uh, Ronaldo, who's the biggest soccer player, one of the biggest soccer players in the world, now plays for a Saudi club team. They've bought 10% of Heathrow Airport. So we're seeing them making making these economic moves where they really want to invest their money outside of oil. They've announced plans to build nuclear uh nuclear power plants and have them up and running by uh, 2032, I believe. So Mm -hmm. those are some pretty significant uh, moves for a nation that really has 
built its wealth on oil uh, and on those, you know, more traditional um, energy sources. So I think we're going to see some really exciting things out of Saudi Arabia in the next 10 years. Uh, and I think I personally think I view MBS and this new Saudi Arabia um, because he really has closed the door on Wahhabism, the more radical ideas that we've seen out of their country over the past few generations. He's closed that door. He's opened a new door. And I think Saudi Arabia could become the greatest ally, if not one of the greatest allies um, for for America in this post awakening moment that we're in, where we're, we're, we're trying to shake off the 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 shackles of the globalist deep state. On that note, we have a lot to learn about actually draining swamps. Uh, there, there's, uh, there's a lot of desire. There were cer certain efforts made in the past few years that gave people, I think, a, a reasonable amount of hope that some national fight were possible in the otherwise corrupt, um, beaten down transatlantic community that represents the rules-based international new world order zone of control under NATO, the five eyes. So we've actually started seeing over the past few years, a bit of resistance, which is inspiring. Um, but we've also seen some setbacks too, but looking at a country like Saudi Arabia, which you alluded to, um, has actually been draining the swamp and doing it in a much more effective way than we have. What lessons do you think we could take from it? How has MBS been able to uh, carry out the fight against what was otherwise a very evil, virulent fifth column deep state structure in Saudi Arabia that had been working to k help make things like Al Qaeda possible going back to the 70s, the 80s, 9-11 wouldn't have been possible were it not for complicity within agencies within Saudi Arabia. So how did he do this? It's a really, really great question. It's a fascinating story. Um, I my understanding um he, he's a pretty private guy he there's not a lot out there about his life um he's lived most of his life in just in saudi arabia he hasn't lived abroad like like all of his cousins have it really goes back to 9 11. um i think he was 16 years old when 9 11 happened he watched the second plane hit um it had a very very deep uh effect on him um and he basically said and this was written in like in uh new york times uh biographers of, of him who were trying to cast him as like this evil person on behalf of the CIA. Uh, even they said that he had this vendetta in his head where I'm going to go after every single person involved in this and, and get even. And at the same time, his older half brothers who were in their forties at the time, um, who, who were pretty well known around the world for their relationships with, with the American government um, died suddenly of, uh, I think it was uh, heart related issues, but one of them died in 2001. The second one died in 2002 had a very, very deep impact on the father, on, on their father. And so because of that, he actually became very close with his father, stuck with him, um, did not go to Europe to go to school like all of his older half brothers and his cousins did. So he went to school in Riyadh. He attended law school in Riyadh. He uh, was at his father's side all the time, attending meetings with him. Um, and his father, Salman, really wasn't supposed to ascend to anything higher than the governor of Riyadh, like the the sovereign of mm. the central air, the central area of uh, Arabia. And through just a, some cir circumstances in 2012, he becomes the crown prince in 2015 when his brother, uh, MBS's uncle dies. Um, he becomes king. He makes MBS the Saudi defense minister in January uh, 2015. And what he does is he, uh, MBS, is he calls in his four top advisors. I think two of them are his brothers. And he closed, closed the doors, he locked the doors. He says, no one's leaving until we come up with a plan to fix our government, purge the corruption out of it. 12 hours later, they had that plan. 
Um, 10 days later, this is January 2015, 10 days later, they had the entire government restructured. They tore down the entire government. They reorganized it under two, basically two agencies, um, economy and military slash defense slash law enforcement. Um, and so the entire government is now structured that way. And um, that was also when he realized that that the PIF, the public investment fund, which is how they fund their entire government, it's basically like an endowment. Um, he realized, he looked at the books and realized that it was scheduled to go, it was set to go insolvent by 2017 because of bad investments, embezzlement, waste, fraud. Um, they were basically hemorrhaging about $100 billion a year and they have a $400 billion investment. So about a quarter, I mean, uh, um, um, budget. So about a quarter of their budget was being, hem of cash flow was being hemorrhaged every year or wasted. Mm. And so he had to scramble to clean that up. Um, his, his, uh, cousin, uh, Naif becomes, uh, crown prince. His, his father is King makes his cousin Naif crown prince. This makes the CIA very happy because he has a very long, um, intimate relationship with the CIA. Uh, and so MBS is the defense minister as defense minister. He starts dismantling basically the sh Sharia police, the religious police. He defunds the, the religious police. Um, they still existed at the time, but basically didn't have any, any, uh, money. Uh, he's defunding the clerics, the, the radical Wahhabi clerics, upsetting a lot of the older family members who are really into that religious sect. But a lot of the people of Saudi Arabia loved him for it because they did not. Nobody likes to live under oppression. Men and women weren't allowed to speak at coffee shops before then. Um, movie theaters weren't allowed to operate. Uh, there are a lot of things that weren't allowed to happen, like just normal social interactions mm -hmm. weren't allowed to occur. And then May of 2017, Donald Trump makes his first trip abroad. Um, and to the surprise of everyone, especially the mainstream media, he goes to, of all places, Saudi Arabia after two years of campaigning on anti-Muslim rhetoric, anti-radical um, Islamic terrorism rhetoric. He goes to Saudi Arabia. They roll out the red carpet. They welcome him, like, a, like get, basically give him a king's welcome, um, give him a sword dance. Um, other things happen while he was there. And then a month later, uh, Salman, Salman comes out and announces that MBS is going to be crown prince. Naif is out. MBS is in. Um, his coronation is scheduled for November. And when the coronation comes on November 4th, 2017, that was when the infamous Saudi purge occurs, where over the next two years, between 2017 and 2019, 400 of the most corrupt cousins are rounded up and imprisoned. One of them being Naif, actually, the one, the one who was going to be who was crown prince. Um, including also Al, Al Walid, um, who Trump always referred to as Prince Dopey on, on Twitter. Um, he, for those who don't know, was the primary stakeholder in Twitter. He was a large stakeholder in CNN. He was one of the biggest uh, donors to the Democrat Party, very, very close to the Clintons um, and the CIA. So all these guys who are, have close connections to the CIA, who were funding ISIS, who um, had connections to like 9-11, all of them get rounded up and arrested. Um, the, a lot of their assets were, were seized, uh, and the corruption was just was purged out of the government. They had, I think, about four thousand radical clerics who were pushing the Wahhabi sect. They arrested seven hundred fifty of them, and then expelled the other whatever four thousand from their government. And uh, so Saudi Arabia is is night and day. And Lindsey Graham, who really has never never liked Saudi Arabia, when all this happened, you know, the Khashoggi thing happened, which my opinion on the Khashoggi thing is I think that was probably a, like a CIA 
uh, frame job. Like somebody, I mean, the idea that the Saudi, the Saudi uh, special forces or, or, or intelligence services would be murdering or assassinating a foreign, whatever you want to call them, gangster, gangster, gangster slash journal, like journalists in one of their uh, embassies in Turkey doesn't make any sense. There's no, like none of, nothing about the story makes sense. Um, it seems to me more likely like it was a CIA hit hit that was, or maybe Mossad that was intended to um, frame him to make him look bad in the eyes of the West. And it, it worked. I mean, Lindsey Graham was saying, I will not speak to Saudi Arabia or deal with them until MBS is out. This guy is a murdering psychopath. That was the rhetoric being pushed by the mainstream media in America. Um, now, since this, this past year, Lindsey Graham has gone to Saudi Arabia. He, he's come back and said, this is amazing. All of y'all need to go over there and see what they're doing. Um, I cannot believe what is happening over there. Lindsey and, and Graham said something like that? Lindsey, Lindsey Graham, I, I have the article I can pull up, but yes, it was, I think it was March or it was April of this year. Lindsey Graham went over there and came back just completely flabbergasted at what he saw when he went over there. Uh, it's it a different wonder what he's thinking about uh, Saudi Arabia's uh, improved relations with Iran. They've rebuilt relations also. They've rebuilt the bridges that were destroyed in 2016. That's been rebuilt as well as with uh, Syria, with Turkey. So I wonder what Lindsey Graham, who's been slobbering at the mouth for bombing Iran would think about Saudi Arabia's other diplomatic maneuvers to uh, stabilize uh, the region with other, f yeah, it, weird, weird thing for Lindsey Graham to come out saying, eh? It's weird, especially since he was somebody pushing the the anti-Saudi rhetoric, even as Trump and MBS are getting along famously, MBS mm. is doing things that are very, very much in the interest of America. And Lindsey Graham is still saying bad things about them because of the Khashoggi Thing, which which is why I think that that's that was the purpose of the Khashoggi hit was to basically frame him for that. Um, and then I, I think it was Trump who like pardoned him or so, something happened with the American government. I can't remember exactly what it was, but it, it um, a ruling was made where he wasn't going to be held account. Like he wasn't going to be personally prosecuted by by whatever the international court or America for that incident, because I, I think he was uh, absolved of any wrongdoing. But uh, but but anyway, to your question, what I think is driving a lot of these new relationships, the, these uh, the UMA, the the Muslim community, the, the the reformation, the reforming, the re the reunification of the UMA, which hasn't happened in like a thousand years, is the idea of really building as opposed to to destroying and war, which is a lot of the things that have been associated with the Middle East and the destable the destabilization of that region over the past century, which is which was driven a lot by the British government. Um, and America, uh, I think now they're about they're looking to the future. They want to build things. They want uh, MBS. He's a big tech nerd. He wants to be the next Silicon Valley. He describes a teenager to his other cousins that he wants to be the, the history's next Alexander the Great, which mm -hmm. uh, you and I discussed before how Alexander the Great was so important because he married the East and the West and kind of undid the the empire building that was happening in Persia um, and really made a, a more uh, stabilized world that was less um, prone to warfare. Um, that's it, big. Yeah, it, I think that that's one of the most insightful things that he actually saw himself walking in the footsteps of Alexander the Great, which a lot of people don't think about the historical meaning of these types of reference points. Um, this has been an introduction to Gordon McCormick. Um, I, I'm very, very happy to have you on. And just this is an important point to elucidate for a lot of the audience members who need to get very, very familiar with this dynamic and this history. 
Uh, and we're going to continue this, this discussion when we come back with Connecting the Dots on TNTradio.live. Jeremy Nell on TNT Radio. Being South African, I'm, I know the situation and it's incredibly dire. Basically, our farmers, mostly white, have been under attack for years and years and years. And when I say attack, I mean that physically, don't I? Yes. Um, since the dawn of democracy in South Africa, since 1994, we had an average of uh, one farm attack every second day. Um, so it averages around uh, 175 to 190 farm attacks every year. And we had a farm murder on average every fifth day. Um, but over the last few months, both of those numbers have picked up. Murders in other sectors of society are not accompanied by the same levels of brutality and torture as you will find in farm murders. Jeremy Nell on today's News Talk, TNT Radio. The Light is Britain's far-right conspiracy theory paper spreading hate and vicious lies. No, that's what the BBC say. The Light is the only national newspaper bringing you the real news and informed opinion on what's really going on today. You can subscribe, order copies, submit articles and read back issues on our website thelightpaper.co.uk and see for yourself why the establishment are so worried about the uncensored truth getting out to people every month. The Light Paper. Not for right, just right so far. thelightpaper.co.uk At the top of the hour, we'll keep on top of the news. It's the most important thing we can do. On today's News Talk, TNT Radio. All right, we're back with Connecting the Dots. I'm here with Gordon McCormick. Gordon, the uh, right you've written a lot you or you've 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 really elucidated through your various shows through your research the uh, the battle within the historic dynamic of Saudi Arabia the the house of al saud going back for over a century into the past and you've pointed out that there has been this struggle between this British imperial anglo intelligence um infusion of wahhabism on the one hand, that's at the heart of things like the Muslim Brotherhood, things like the worst of what was brought online, uh, especially in the 70s and the 80s, as far as what became Al-Qaeda and these radicalizing madrasas. But then you also have something um, that is tied to a historic civilizational identity of nation building, which has been at war with this other thing. There's like sort of a clash of two Saudi Arabias. Can you say a little bit more about what what is Wahhabism? What is the historic battle between these two things? It's a great question. Um, my research has has led me to believe this is just my understanding, and I, I'm not an expert in Islam, and I don't claim to be. Um, but my understanding is that Wahhabism came to be in the 1700s, the early 1700s, where a cleric who had been traveling around Saudi Arabia named Al Wahhab, he teamed up with the patriarch of the Saudi of of the now uh, House of Saud, um, his name, uh, Mohammed bin uh, Saud was actually his name. So MBS, the original MBS, uh, they teamed up and basically formed a uh, the beginning of a caliphate, um, a, a theocratic political union where they both through past experience realized they kind of needed each other. Um, the cleric gave him the uh, the vision, kind of the 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 war cry, the rally cry, and he gave the cleric the political um, backing that he needed because he had been expelled from several other places for um, his more radical views. And so what they 
this was a result basically of um, mystical occultism that had been coming and going. Um, Saudi, uh, Arabia has a history like of cycles of mystical occultism, which is basically people um, committing idolatry, like worshiping statues, trees, rocks. And what that always seems to lead to eventually is the sacrificing of animals, of people, of babies. Um, and so while I used to think in my past life, I thought that, uh, you know, I bought into kind of the, the narrative that um, Islam had been a creation um, as a reaction to Christianity. I actually learned that it really wasn't. It was really more of a reaction to the mystical occultism, um, sa Satanism, as we would call it today, uh, yeah. and devil worship. And so these guys in 1744 signed, like basically make the Pact of Doria is what it's called. And that from there, they go out to kind of conquer Arabia, so to speak, or at least to um, spread their influence. And you get two different, you know, the first state of Saud, which lasts roughly a century, the second state of Saud, which lasts less than that. Um, you know, so the 1700s, you have this, the first state of Saud, the sec, the uh, 1800s, you have the second state of Saud. And what, what keeps happening is um, the Ottoman Empire is uh, putting its thumb on the scale to crush them. First, they send the Egyptian army uh, in the early 1800s to destroy um, the House of Saud. They they think they've killed them all off, but they don't. They come back, um, resurrect the second state of Saud, and then um, the, uh, the House of Rashid, um, which is an, like a rival clan, they're sent by the Ottomans to wipe them out for good. And basically like a woman and her, and her son escape and go to, Ku go to Kuwait and hide out with uh, the Almorah, which are the the tribe that raises the camels. And so everyone respects this tribe because they raise the camels and every tribe is measured by the, the number of camels they have. And these guys take care of this woman. This, the, the boy grows up. This boy is MBS. The current MBS is the current crown prince's grandfather, um, Ibn Saud. He, he meets a lot of um, international players being in, in courts with these guys, uh, meets some British, British officials, British uh, intelligence guys. Um, British intelligence was only a few decades old at that point and basically gets inspired to go back um, in around 1900 to go back and retake his ancestral home hometown of Riyadh and, and Daria from this rival clan. He does that. He forms what's called what he calls the the Ikhwan, the um, the Muslim Brotherhood. He forms the Muslim Brotherhood. You had a bunch of, of young, poor kids who had nothing <clears throat> really, really uh, no economic prospects. Um, he put swords in their hands and said, let's go take back what's ours. I mean, that's a that's something that a lot of young, young, angry men with nothing really to live for are going to respond to. They then go on this. It's not so much a conquest as much of a of a of creating this this Uma, creating this. It's not quite a caliphate, but it's a, it's a kingdom that they're trying to form. And they do it through through some conquest, but also the British are backing them. So the British are like understand what this guy's trying to do. They're giving him a lot of gold every month. He's then using that gold to buy the loyalty of, of tribes and local local towns and communities and settlements. Um, so he's buying he's buying influence. He's he's conquering. Um, and this is the third state of Saud. This is the current state of Saud. And eventually this becomes um, Saudi Arabia in the early 1930s. This for, he he has the eastern portion of Arabia, the Arabian Peninsula under his control. The western coast of Arabia is under the control of the Hashemites, which for those who've seen the 1962 movie um, Lawrence of Arabia, the family that Lawrence is helping there, uh, Prince Faisal, those are the Hashemites. The Hashemites are the direct blood blood descendants of the Prophet Muhammad. So they are kind of like considered royalty in the Islamic world. 
Um, and they ruled Mecca, Medina, the whole Western coast of Arabia for about 700 years until the end of World War One. They they agreed to help the British fight the Ottomans in exchange for their autonomy um, and control of Arabia. Um, you know, very similar like, to what the Americans wanted in 1776. They succeed, they defeat the Ottomans, and then the British betray them um, and basically take Syria, take Iraq, take Palestine, um, Transjordan, and end up fighting a war now with with the Arabs that they had just been allied with right after World War One with, with Winston Churchill. Uh, and the result of that, after a few years of fighting in 1925, is uh, they dispatch um, Ibn Saud to... Uh, Mecca to to basically conquer the the Hashemites, which he does, and <clears throat> he doesn't kill them though. He he just defeats them, and they are then eventually at the end of it left with Iraq and Jordan. So and now and then eventually in the fifties, I think the CIA color revolution they slaughter in a very gruesome fashion the Hashemites ruling Iraq. They were trying to form a uh, a Hashemite um, kingdom with Jordan. And so now today, the the current king of Jordan, um, Abdullah, he is a Hashemite. So the Hashemites now rule Jordan. The, the House of Saud rules rules Saudi Arabia. And you're now actually in the Hashemites, for what it's worth, during World War One, were actually seemed to me to be a pretty altruistic group. Um, they actually were working in earnest to to give their people a better life and a better a better existence, you know, without the Europe, without outside influence, without, without the Ottomans, uh, the Ottoman Empire ruling over them, the British Empire ruling over them, and they failed. And I think what we're seeing now, it's almost kind of this poetic, like redemption arc, where I think you're seeing now MBS bring that vision to fruition, because their vision was Arabia was Syria all the way down to Yemen, that they consider all of that to be Arabia. Um, and we saw it back in May of this year after Hillary Clinton expelled Syria from the Arab League in 2012 during the, Air, uh, the Syrian civil war. We saw MBS bring Assad into the Arab League meeting back in May, give him a warm hug, you know, slap mm. him back. And, and then he gave this great speech about how Syria was a critical part of Arabia and they couldn't allow Syria basically to fall into this axis that was forming between Turkey, Iran you know, Afghanistan, like this new Persian axis that seems to be very much supported by the Brzezinski's of the world, the, you know, the CIA, they seem, as far as I can tell, they seem to really want this Iranian um, axis to, to kind of like supersede or, or usurp um, Saudi authority as the sovereign or the leader of, uh, of uh, the Middle East. And so yeah. I think that was kind of happening over the past 20 years, you were seeing this this tension formed between the old Persian empire and in Arabia, um, which I think now has really been resolved. It seems like MBS is, has, has, has built that rebuilt that bridge. He's brought them into the fold and he said, look, I don't want to fight y'all. I don't want war. I want a prosperous um, middle East, you know, a prosperous Muslim world where we are the actual cultural center of the world. Um, we're the leaders of the world, not because we conquered the world, but because we inspire the world to be as good as we are, as great as we are. And I don't know how much people like the Iranians and others have bought into it, but they seem to be on board because what that requires is destroying the Western intelligence presence in the Middle East. The CIA, British intelligence, which has basically ruled the Middle East for at least the past century, if not longer, um, or, or at least controlled it through color revolution, through manipulation, which, which you and I have talked about on other shows. 
And I think we're seeing that happen right now. I think we're seeing an exorcism being performed in the Middle East right now, which is going to ultimately result in the CIA being exposed for funding a lot of these radical madrasas in the 1970s, which, as, as you've pointed out, Brzezinski was behind a lot of that. He um, helped fund uh, while he was helping the Mujahideen, Osama bin Laden fight the, the Soviets in Afghanistan. Part of their like partnership agreement was Brzezinski was funding madrasas um, throughout the Middle East for uh, Osama bin Laden, and they were teaching Wahhabism at these schools, which was then cultivating what would ultimately become Al Qaeda later, and then and then ISIS. So the the U.S. and and, and Britain were funding schools that are radicalizing the locals, <clears throat> and then they're creating wartime conditions that are then motivating people to go out and join militias that then just further destabilizes the region. So, you know, it's like, it's like taking an ant farm and shaking it up, uh, like putting fire, putting fire ants in a, in a, in an ant farm and shaking it up. It's basically what was happening. And, uh, so I think we're seeing that now being undone and it requires great discipline. It requires great strength. They have to sit there and basically let what's happening right now play out. Uh, because I do think they're being provoked right now into a, into a conflict with Israel, which um, would result in World War III, and millions of people probably would die. Uh, and, but I think they're, they are taking the stronger, the stronger pr- approach, which is wait and see and allow the world to kind of come to their aid and step in and say, look, this, is, this, this needs to end. This, this needs to stop. We need to do a full adjudication of October 7th and what happened. And I think when that does occur, things will come to light that will validate everything that I just said. Mm-hmm. Well, I, I do think that we are at a historic moment of a moral test for all of civilization. And I think what you just said is is so important to just get across that it, it, it's going to require that we keep our heads on our shoulders and not fall into traps because this could unravel so easily, especially with what's been exploded in the Gaza and what's been awoken as far as this machinery within this end times cult of... Ah, Solomon's third temple rebuilding end times eschatology um, machinery, which is very difficult to negotiate with this sort of irrationalism that believes that, uh, you know, a greater Israel must be the, the outcome of whatever conflict that God wills that the chosen people rule the land purged of Arabs. That could go nuclear fast considering what types of deals Israel has with the United States with a lot of Western powers, but also what types of um, chain reaction could be unleashed if other Arab nations bit the bait and got sucked into this conflict too. Um, That could then invoke all sorts of requirements or pressure onto Russia, China, two major nuclear powers in defending their Arab allies, of which we have a growing number of them. Iran is already a member with India, with Pakistan, of the Shanghai Cooperation Organization, soon of the BRICS. Saudi Arabia is an observer member of the Shanghai Cooperation Organization, but full-blown BRICS very soon. This could really go sour fast. So as you pointed out, it it it, it is frustrating to, it, it's painful, it's morally painful to watch the horrors in the Gaza and not, not uh, see interventions happening the way we'd like in defense of the innocent people being murdered there. But at the same time, all of humanity hangs in the balance. So 
it's really, really important that we keep our poise. And I think what you pointed out of Saudi Arabia working with Africa, like they've had summits for all of the African nations to come to Saudi Arabia, sign deals with all of the Arab countries to work together on economic deals. Very important. You're one of the few people who really understands this importance of multi-generational economic development projects. I really, really appreciate that. It's been amazing to watch because I've just been I, like I, I follow all of the Saudi foreign ministry uh, accounts online and like their daily announcements, which are, you know, it's very mundane. It's very kind of like dry stuff. But if you just track it over a long period of time, you notice the patterns you notice is that every single day they're flying in diplomats from around the world to meet with their people, with their with their guys. Um, they're hosting these big conferences, conferences, as you just mentioned, the African conference, the um, a Caribbean conference. They brought all the Caribbean nations over, um, Asian conference. And basically what I think they're doing is they're bringing these guys in and they're saying, look, we have this PIF, we have this investment fund. We're trying to dive, uh, divest out of oil. Um, they, they did put up a uh, 5% of Aramco for sale. That was, that was mm -hmm. one of the ways they bailed. So Aramco for those who don't know is the Saudi national, uh, oil company. It's always been private. So it's books has always, have always been like, like offline, like private, but it's been long speculated that it's the most valuable company in the world. Um, and so what happened was MBS, in order to bail themselves out of that insolvency I mentioned before, was he basically made a lot of that stuff transparent, a lot of their financial record, uh, financial reporting transparent and put up 5% of the company for public sale. And that helped bail them out of that hole they were in. And then now I think what he's doing is he's bringing in these countries and saying, I have billions of dollars that I want to invest in different places where can I invest this money in your country? How can we how can we be be economic partners and trade like actual partners, not like I'm going to come buy, you know, your infrastructure and own your nation, you know, through subversive methods like we've, we've seen from, you know, some of the globalist uh, clowns. But that's what I think they're doing. And because of that, what I've noticed is that there's a lot of reverence around the world for this new Saudi Arabia and MBS. There, there seems to be uh this this high praise for him for mbs and there seems to be a lot of um uh he's very affable um he's very likable and i think everyone really all these other foreign countries really like him and have his back and so i think if he come you know when this whole thing happened with gaza which i was saying back in the summer i was like i, I said i think they're going to try to force a, a war between iran and israel because um mbs is making some serious moves to stabilize the middle east for good and they're, they're not going to let that happen. Um, and I think right now the rhetoric coming out of D.C. is they, they want this war with Iran no matter what. They are accusing them of, of uh, you know, having nukes or, or a nuclear program. I said it back in the summer and General uh, Douglas McGregor has said it as well more recently. They don't Iran does not need nukes to destroy Tel Aviv or Israel. They mm -hmm. have hypersonic missiles that can penetrate the Iron Dome. They can strap conventional warheads to those missiles and just leveled Tel Aviv. If they wanted to destroy Tel Aviv, it would already be destroyed. So right. the, the, the the nuke thing is kind of a, a red hair, herring to me. It's kind of irrelevant. They don't need nukes to, to destroy Israel if they really wanted to, um, which is why I think it's that that's like a false fly. Like they're setting up, they're setting up um, conditions that to justify a preemptive strike against Iran, in my opinion. But after the attack on October 7th, what I said, like on the shows that I was on was, I was looking for MBS to step in call a summit of the entire Muslim world to Riyadh um, and basically have like a meeting where in private he would say, everyone stand down, 
just put your trust in me. I have this. Let me handle this. I've been working on this peace deal with Israel for three years. They started it in 2020. I think he knew when he started that peace deal, when he when he brought in Faisal bin Farhan um, and he dispatched him to work on this peace deal with Israel. I think he knew it was an ultimatum that was going to provoke a violent false flag. I think he All knew right, we're going to we're going to we're going to unpack this a little bit more yeah. after we c- come back from a short commercial break. There's been TNT radio connecting the dots. De-weaponizing weather with reality and perspective. I absolutely love this quote from Alex Epstein. Green energy has two problems. It's not really green and it's not really energy. And therein lies what we are fighting here. The fact of the matter is, this has nothing to do with climate. It has everything to do with restricting the ability of people to have inexpensive energy and by having inexpensive energy become more upwardly mobile. Now, hopefully this gets recognized more and more with each passing day. I know that I've been talking to some college age kids where I live and they say that college age kids are becoming more and more aware of what's going on here. That certainly would be something that would be a benefit. All we ask is that people look at all the information and make a rational conclusion given what they're actually seeing and what the data actually says. There is no climate emergency. We are in a climate optimum. And again, what a great quote. Green energy has two problems. It's not green and it's not energy. This is TNT climate and weather watchdog meteorologist Joe Bastardi asking you to enjoy the weather. It's the only weather you've got. Need a ride? Yeah! Driving with kids is a big responsibility. Hop in and buckle up! So don't sweat the small stuff. You got paint all over our paper! Get the big stuff right instead. What does that mean? Like making sure your kids are in the correct car seat and buckled up for safer travel. That deserves a wiggly wiggly wig. To make sure your child is in the right seat for their age and size, visit NHTSA.gov slash the right seat. This is Connecting the Dots with Matt Arrett on today's News Talk Radio, TNT. All right, we're back with Connecting the Dots in our third segment with Gordon McCormick. Um, Gordon, I, I have noticed, and people have asked me, what do I think about the uh, the issue of, of October 7th? Was it a false flag? Um, I think all evidence that I've looked at pointed to what you've alluded to already in the previous segment yeah, it was a false flag. There was foreknowledge, foreplanning, like it's been done so many times before, um, so that people would fall into a sort of predictable set of false choices. Are you with us or with the terrorists? And um, you were making the point that, uh, well, actually, one thing is that the Abraham Accords is something that I think a lot of people don't fully appreciate the value or the weight of what that was, what MBS's role was also in advancing the Abraham Accords and just recognizing Israel as a state from its within the sphere of its Arab neighbors that would have resulted in creating a condition whereby some form of durable peace process would be made possible. I don't think we were as close to this type of uh, durable peace as we were on October 6th, the day before this false flag was launched. Um you were, could you say a little bit more about MBS's role in trying to normalize relations with Israel, create positive economic relations, and what were the Abraham Accords and Trump's role within this dynamic that I know you've written and spoken quite a bit about? 
Yes, great question. Great question. Um, a little over a year ago, I've speculated that uh, just from researching the Abraham Accords, it seemed to me, and I developed this fascination with MBS years ago uh, because of what he was doing and his relationship with Trump and, and the Saudi purge. Um, it seemed to me that you know, the two things that I really noticed that it seemed to me that even though Jared Kushner was getting all the credit for brokering the Abraham Accords, I think more likely, especially because of his very close relationship with MBS, uh, it seems more like MBS was probably the one working behind, working his contacts behind the scenes to help Kushner broker that. Um, because it, it always seemed to me like if you were going to bring the Arab world together, you were going to need somebody from inside the tent, so to speak, to do it. Like an outsider wasn't going to come in, an American wasn't going to come in, an Israeli wasn't going to come in and do it for them. They they need to, to, to do it on their own. I would say the same thing for any community. Um, so that always seemed to make sense to me. I also speculated uh, last year that was the Abraham, you know, they say the Abraham Accords uh, were formed in order to protect Israel from the, the Arabs. But I couldn't help but wonder, was it perhaps actually the other way around? Was it was the Abraham Accords, were, were they made and did the Arabs all agree to it? Because it was actually to protect the Arabs from the U.S. State Department um, and the Israeli deep state, uh, which we know have have shown a lot of aggression and pa passive aggression um, in the past. And, uh, you know, a lot of these vi violent uh, conflicts that have occurred have really come from from Israel. Um, they've been the, the, the provocateur so often. Um, so those were two things. But I didn't really have a lot of actual to, to support those ideas. Those are just kind of theories. Um, so, yes, I, I think that the Abraham Accords were all were were a very significant um, point. It, it really is the culmination of like 40 or 50 years of, of negotiations because the Saudis have been pushing this idea of a two-state solution, as Faisal bin Farhan recently said it at the UN, um, since 1982, since the Fez uh, Arab summit. That was when they first proposed this two-state solution. And then um, the Oslo Accords in the 90s, that was when um, Yasser Arafat and P uh, Palestine officially recognized Israel as a, as a nation and, you know, didn't... They gave up any idea, like any dreams of ever like uh, retaking Israel for themselves, uh, ostensibly at least. And um, <clears throat> that I think we're now seeing that all come to fruition. The thing that always kind of stuck out, stuck out to me, though, was that set the Saudis weren't a part of it. Like, why wasn't Saudi Arabia part of the Abraham Accords? And I think that was strategic. I think they were intentionally left off. The Abraham Accords were not actually signed until I think May of 2020. Uh, right before Trump left office. And that was also when the Saudis began the the campaign for the peace deal with Israel, for them to effectively join the Abraham Accords. Part of that would have been Palestine. So it's basically Palestine and Saudi Arabia together joining the joining the Abraham Accords. Obviously, the, the Palestinian angle is going to be the really, really controversial, difficult sticking point for Israel. Um, but if Saudi Arabia and Israel can form a peace, like form a lasting peace, then that stabilizes the entire region and allows for these visions of a future, like building a future to, to take seed. Given what we know about a lot of the people running the Israeli government, um, Smotrich, who is the finance minister, gave a speech back in April um, at a place in Israel. This is uh, Netanyahu's finance minister. He gave a speech at a place where he had a banner on his podium uh, of a map of greater Israel. It was Israel, Palestine, and Jordan, all one blue color with like the, yeah. like the Dead Sea in the center of it, clear clear as day that, that that's what it was. It was a greater Israel uh, uh, event, like advocating for that. 
And, you know, Naftala Bennett, who uh, filled in for a year and a half as prime minister because Netanyahu can't keep like a, a government formed. Um, he, he even said, he said, look, Netanyahu isn't nearly as radical as I am. I don't believe Palestine has a right to exist. I don't think the Palestinians deserve to be here. They should be driven out or destroyed. So you have some really radical fundamentalists running Israel. I think MBS knew that all along. I think he knew that they were like stalling and playing games. Trump himself has said in, in um, interviews, he said, I don't think Netanyahu wanted to make a deal. He said, uh, and I quote, he, he described Abbas, the president of Palestine, as a father-like figure. He said he expected to walk in there and to meet this tough character, but he was actually was very soft, like, like wise elder, which he did not expect. And he walked away with like this total inversion of his preconceived notions of Abbas and the Palestinians. And then he went and met with Netanyahu and he said within three minutes, he could tell Netanyahu didn't want to make a deal and was not interested in it at all. And recently Netanyahu has said the Oslo Accords were a mistake. I'm glad we never allowed them to come to fruition. The Oslo Accords, mm -hmm. of course, were the agreement to, to demilitarize the West Bank. So I think that when they started this peace deal in 2020, they knew that this was going to lead to an ultimatum where the deep state was going to try to subvert it. And <clears throat> that subversion, of course, came on October 7th. Um, we know that their Netanyahu has ties to Hamas. He has admitted to funding Hamas um, because he saw them as a destabilizing agent in Palestine, and that would give Israel a strategic advantage over Palestine. Um, so it makes sense that if they didn't <clears throat> if they didn't directly plan the attack themselves, they at least knew it was coming, and there were other third party agents planning it, and they allowed it to happen. I think that that is that's long been my, since October seventh. That's been my my take on it is that they at the yeah. very least were aware of it and it was a 9-11 Pearl Harbor kind of false flag designed to um, justify an invasion, um, which I think MBS knew was going to happen. And that's why he then summoned the he summoned the, the UMA, the entire Muslim world, 57 nations, a third of the world to Riyadh. Um, from there, they formed basically behind him and he dispatched eight eight um, secretaries of state, eight, eight diplomats from eight nations to go on a global tour. They went to um, Beijing, Russia, London, Paris um, in a week and basically got all like all the major geopolitical players on their like on board. Um, they're I call them team peace They're They just want peace. They don't want war. They're not about they don't want to fight Israel. They don't want World War Three. They don't want any of this stuff. And so now I think we're seeing this this wait and see strategy come to to fruition be, or you know, start to pay dividends because the world now is starting to turn on on Netanyahu and say, look, you're taking this too far. Enough's enough. You're killing way too many people. Um, this is not about Hamas, obviously. This is about something more. And we might start seeing, you know, we are seeing now war crime tribunal calls, like calls for war crime tribunals against um, the Israeli government. And I, I can't help but speculate, are we going to see evidence presented there of the Western intelligence agencies operating in the Middle East at these hearings if they occur? Um, and what what impact would that have on everything if that happens? I can't imagine the geopolitical implications, the implications in American domestic politics. I mean, the undoing of the Patriot Act, you know, the dismantling of the TSA. I mean, things that the Department of Homeland Security, all these things came out of 9-11. And, and have fundamentally transformed American society. Yeah. And to learn that it was all done on nefarious, definitively learned that it was all done on nefarious um, uh, uh, intent, I mean, that that would really upend things. And there are a lot of people in my country who are uh, 
really, really holding on to the hope that that, that day is going to come, that that disclosure event, they were hoping that Trump was going to do it in his first term. The speculation is that Trump's going to do it in his second term. I can't help but wonder now if maybe Trump took all those classified files on 9-11 and gave them to MBS. And maybe he maybe he has all that data now. And it would make a lot of sense to me, given Saudi's central central role in 9-11 with, you know, they found the 19 passport the day of. They couldn't yeah. find anything else. Like everything, everything else was obliterated, but they found the 19 Saudi passports. It would it would be very, very like poetic um, and fitting for Saudi to be the one to present the evidence that actually it was the American government working with maybe the Israeli government and maybe others, uh, maybe members of the royal family as well um, to do 9-11 and, um, and, and basically everything ever since. So that would be that would be a very lawful thing. And certainly for something so, so big um, of a lie to to be brought into the light of day requires political power. You need to have the the wielding of real political national power to force this type of issue into the discussion because that's not permitted in polite society. And, you know, people who have been involved with engineers and, and uh, architects for 9-11 Truth understand I've probably come to discover this over 20 years of trying to bring the facts to light. It's not going to happen unless you really have national backing so what you're bringing up as a prospect um and it's true you you see world leaders from turkey onward now calling for serious nuremberg-like tribunals to be held over the the illegal massacre what's been what's been happening and also implicitly as you just pointed out the the evidence of foreknowledge possibly probably collusion that brings in also elements of billionaires within qatar who are also strangely powerful and influential amongst this branch that grew out of um, the Muslim Brotherhood, that would be am amazing, especially with the 28 pages too, uh, that implicates Prince Bandar bin Sultan, the Saudi embassy in 9-11, who's been very close to the Bush and Cheney's going back to the 80s, and King, King Charles uh, and the royal family of Britain. Um, very, very interesting prospect indeed. Um, yeah, that's, that's quite the strategic possible flank that could feasibly change things, eh? You bring up a great point about Qatar. I mean, Qatar, uh, they they were, you know, Seymour Hirsch wrote articles about how they were pretty central to the Syrian civil war. Um, you know, his reporting and other speculation is that uh, the Qataris wanted an oil pipeline um, into Europe that would have to go through Syria. Assad, it would compete with the Russian pipeline. Assad, who was who's uh, uh, allies with Putin, wouldn't allow it. They went to Hillary Clinton, Secretary of State at the time, and said, help us. Donations were made to the Clinton Foundation, and then all of a sudden we got the Arab Spring and uh, ISIS and the Syrian civil war, and then and then the American calls for the ousting of Assad, uh, color revolution in Syria, which failed. Um, so, and then when MBS came to power and Trump was in office, uh, the two of them together worked together to bring sanctions and embargoes against Qatar and accused them publicly of being the chief financiers of ISIS and radical Islamic terrorism. Um, so, so those, and, and MBS has made inroads in Qatar since then. He's tried to bring them into the UMA and make them, you know, part of the, the, the team, um, you know, to what extent we don't really know, but, but it's just worth pointing out that while they're ostensibly all on the same team, there probably is still some internal struggles happening, you know, power struggles happening. Um, and, the, and, you know, there are people who need to be dealt with on their side. And I think MBS understands this, um, and, Sometimes you have to just let you have to let evil be itself. Sometimes you just have to let bad actors be themselves. I mean, we see with COVID, like what Trump did, how he handled 2020, 
Um, a lot of people wanted him to be a little more uh, assertive in exposing that stuff at the time. He took a more passive kind of step back and allow Fauci and them to um, do their will, which I think now has, in a very similar fashion to what we're talking about with Israel, they've kind of exposed themselves. Uh, and I think there is going to be a retribution against the American, American government, American deep state for COVID, for the origins, for the vaccine, for all that stuff. So I think that we're yeah. gonna see that also come to fruition um, in parallel to, to, to what's happening in the Middle East. Well, that brings also up the the issue of of bio warfare, which has been people didn't even have this in their lexicon up until uh, very recently for obvious reasons. But now that we know that there have been bio warfare facilities built up in Ukraine and Georgia and South Korea, all around the world, three over three hundred Pentagon connected bio warfare facilities. A lot of them were they grew out of the massive budget that was created in the wake of the anthrax attacks. Another inside job done by forces within the U.S. establishment, this deep state operation that's been latched on and taking control of the United States. That's where a lot of this came from. And we know that now for the first time, this implicates high level players within the Biden crime family. Um, we know that Russia, China have been trying to unsuccessfully so far bring the evidence of these bio warfare facilities to public light uh, that have been captured in, in Ukraine. But uh, but beyond that, I mean, everything could really unravel now, especially if you get this open discussion going on across multiple nations, not just Russia and China, but get other nations uh, to take part and force this conversation into reality. It'll be really hard for people in the West to ignore such a thing. That's, uh, you know. Yes, that, it's such a good point. And I would I would summarize it like, well, like, like end it all by saying that uh, there's a guy at Badlands Media, Burning Bright, who says, uh, you know, we we in this this truth movement are hunters of lies. So he so he always tries to look for the contradictions, look for the lies, because that's the that's that's how you expose who the liars are. Um, one thing that I've noticed, a pattern that I've noticed that I've I've been pull, a thread I've been pulling on lately is there's a relationship between the Azov Battalion in Ukraine and the Israeli government going back to at least 2018 when they were financing the Azov Battalion. They were arming them with uh, Tavor rifles, which are special assault rifles that are designed and manufactured in Israel for the IDF. Um, they were sending them to Ukraine for the Azov Battalion. So the Azov Battalion, which are Hitler worshiping Nazis, like Third Reich, like like the children of the Third Reich, so to speak, the spiritual children of the Third Reich, they are now traveling to Israel to help the IDF in Gaza, fighting on behalf yeah. of the Israeli <laughs> government. So you have swastika wearing Hitler worshiping Nazis fighting on behalf of the Jewish ethnostate doesn't make sense. Yeah. No, when we talk about new Nuremberg trials, it's not just rhetoric. We mean what we're saying. This is uh, th there are unresolved sleeping demons or unresolved demons that have been crawling around that have not not been put away after World War II that have to be put away now. So Gordon McCormick, this has been an amazing pleasure. Thank you so much for this wonderful geopolitical briefing. Hope to have you back on again. And uh, this has been Connecting the Dots on TNT Radio. We'll be back with our third segment with David Gosling.